0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists Podcast. I am delighted to say that this series is supported by the Leavitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum. FAM, F A M M, female artists of the Mujan Museum, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mujan, near Cannes, in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated solely to female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks from the collection, from the Impressionists to Surrealism, plus modern and contemporary art. It's opening next June, but in the meantime, stay tuned by following their Instagram, FAM.Mujan. All in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the world-renowned scholar Julia Bryan Wilson, the professor of art history and LGBTQ plus studies at Columbia University and curator-at-large at the Museum of Art Sao Paulo. Bryan Wilson has been instrumental in her work as a queer feminist art historian, critic and curator from organising exhibitions that look at women artists working before 1900 to those that explore the history of dance. She has also curated critically acclaimed shows on the likes of Cecilia Vicuna and Liz Collins. The author of numerous books, including Art Workers, Radical Practice in the Vietnam War Era from 2009, Fray, Art and Textile Politics from 2017, Brian Wilson is also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Robert Motherwell Award, among others. But the reason why we are speaking with Brian Wilson today is because she is the expert in the artist we will be discussing, Louise Nevelson, having authored a monumental new book titled Louise Nevelson's Sculpture, Drag, Colour, Join, Face, as well as curated one-person shows. It's not the medium that counts. It's what you see in it and what you do with it, said Nevelson. The sculptor working in the mid-20th century, New York City, hailed for her monochromatic architectural wall sculptures amassed from found, recycled, and discarded objects. This quote is particularly apt for Brian Wilson, who, through her writing, aims to rethink Nevelson's work through gender, class, and race. And I can't wait to find out more. Julia Brian Wilson, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. I'm so happy to be here, Katie. It's such a joy and an honour.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. And congratulations on your work on Nevelson. Like I said, your four-part book is divided into sections titled Drag, Colour, Join Face. And I was just amazed by the spectrum of these terms, how we interpret them and how we apply them to Nevelson's sculptures, which are like nothing I've ever really seen. You know, some are towering, others human height, they could be black, white, gold installations or sculptures against the wall. But what I love most is not only how she takes discarded materials and turns them into something robust Something beautiful, but how they engulf you and point you to all sorts of culture and history. So, I want to start by asking you: How do you feel in front of Louise Nevelson's work?
1: It's such a great question, and I think the answer is multiple. Sometimes, some people have used this phrase that they all look the same, which to me is really laughable because they look so different. And like you said, they take up different amount of space. Their scales can vary quite widely they have really different affects depending on if they're painted all white or painted all gold or painted all black. So there's no one answer there, but I guess I would say that I often do feel curious about what exactly the materials are, where she got them, how she has affixed them together, what their previous lives were, because often there are these kind of recognizable forms drawn from everyday architectures or furniture. Not always, but so often they're kind of gesturing back to these previous lives, previous cohabitations really with humans. And I think about what kind of lives they lived or what trees they came from. So to me, I I feel very, very curious and I feel sort of alive to the possibilities of all of the histories that are embedded
0: within them. Oh my God, I love that. I love also the fact that so much of what we're looking at have multiple lives. Like you mentioned the tree, but also if it was a banister or if it was something found on a floor, where's it from? The provenance of just a sort of scrap of wood. But I mean, you know, when I'm in front of a Louise Nevelson, it's such an experience. How do you like to experience? And is is there one work in particular that moves you and why? I mean, they are such an experience. I guess I'm, maybe because you're British,
1: I'm thinking about a piece that's actually in the collection of Tate Modern, which is a tribute to the American people. It's actually one of the all gold pieces, quite large, and it really gleams. At the same time, it is pretty gaudy, I would say. So the experience, it's manifold, it's multiple. I I sometimes try to smell the works. That sounds kind of funny, but there's so many recesses and cavities and swoops and curves that it is a kind of like, in my book, I call them machines for catching dust. So I do sometimes try to breathe them in and get a sense of the dust that is clinging so powerfully to their many surfaces. I also try to move around and see how the light is catching them. It really is different if they're all black versus if they're the glittering of the gold. And because they're kind of quasi-architectural, we are asked to inhabit them in space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love this idea that I think I read this in your book. Before 1961, people could actually move around her structures. They were encouraged to move the boxes around at their own discretion. You know, obviously it's 2023, so we can't do that now. But how amazing to actually involve yourself in the structuring of this work.
1: And a lot of her early work before she kind of arrived on the gridded wall was about interactivity, kind of game-like pieces that maybe were moving around on casters in the gallery space in a sense that, you know, the viewer is invited to play a part in the invention and the actual form of the environment that she's creating.
0: And why do you think you are specifically drawn to studying and writing about her work?
1: It's a mystery that I'll never fully untangle, but I also just really love how varied the works can look, despite the continuities of her idiom about assemblage and the monochrome, etc. Yet within that, there's such variation, there's such variability. The works can look really kind of sleek and machinic. They can also look really decrepit and shambolic. I think that she was so good at resting different moods out of the same materials. And for me, that's such a gift. And I do also think that there is something about the domestic for me. I'm really drawn as she was to these kind of old-fashioned forms that then she was really reinvigorating
0: in her sculptures. The nature of your book reads like viewing a Nevelson sculpture in a way, but I would love to go back. You know, let's set the scene for her life. Louise Nevelson was born Leah Berlowski into a Jewish family outside Kiev in 1899. Three years later, her father moved to the US, leaving the family behind. In 1905, the family joined him in Rockland, Maine. And actually, really interestingly, her father worked with wood, having opened a lumberyard, which is just fascinating when you think about her affinity with the wood and the sort of potentials of all of that. So tell me about her upbringing. What was her childhood like? So she often told people that she
1: was from Kiev, but in fact, she was from a very small town about 60 miles outside of Kiev called Perliowski. I've actually been there in part to see the architecture of her very early upbringing, but also I really wanted to see the trees. (laughs) I wanted to see her kind of um, primal forests. So she was born into a Jewish family. They spoke Yiddish at home, both when she was in now present-day Ukraine and what was then Tsarist Russia, and also spoke Yiddish even after they immigrated to Rockland, Maine, which was a very waspy city in New England, very small town where they were one of a kind of very small handful of Jewish families. And she really felt quite othered in that context. You know, they were immigrants living in this very whitewashed place. Well, she knew from very early on that she wanted to be an artist. She had an affinity for it, and I do include some of her childhood drawings, where you can see how she was quite precocious in her representations of domestic interiors and period furniture. And so she always claimed that she knew she was going to be an artist and that that was her destiny. She was very stifled, as I said, in this small town in Maine. And when she was quite young, she got married to Charles Nevelson, who kind of promised... A different sort of life in the hustle and bustle of New York, and she realized very quickly that that was another kind of stifling environment, namely to be a kind of you know housewife uh, who was meant to cater to her husband. And you know, she was an extremely independent, forward-thinking person who didn't want to be shackled by any of those constraints. So she also really started to forge her own path as an artist and traveled, went to Europe ended up leaving her husband and making her own way as a woman artist in the world when it really was you had to be kind of a freak to decide to pursue that without, you know, support around you.
0: I mean, it's so interesting because she married this guy in 1920. In 1922, they had a son. And then in 1928, she left him to go to the art students' league to pursue her career. And I was thinking, because obviously it is literally 100 years ago, the kind of difference and and how, like you say, you were deemed a freak if you wanted to go out there and do that yourself. I mean, it's extraordinary. But also, I mean, this was such a politically tense time as well, you know, the late 1920s and 30s, I mean, across Europe, across America as well. I mean, tell me about the social and political conditions like she started out in. What was it like to be a woman at that time? And how did the kind of backdrop of the rise of Nazism impact what she was able to study as well? Yeah,
1: I mean, she's one of a small number of women who are deciding that that is what they want to do with their lives. And she did try to make a go of it as like hosting a salon when she was married and trying to bring in intellectuals and artists. She always craved different ways of thinking. And after she did leave her husband, she decided to go to Europe to study with Hans Hoffmann, the legendary art teacher, abstract artist and painter and art teacher who was the inventor of a theory of, that he called push and pull, which is about kind of a dynamism of abstraction to receding planes and his art school. She was there not even a year before the school was shuttered because of the rise of Nazism.
0: But I mean, this was such an interesting time as well. She returned to New York again when she studied with Hans Hoffman in 1932. And I mean, in 1933, was already assisting the likes of Diego Rivera on his murals.
1: Right. The city of New York, which was endlessly inspiring to her, gave her access to all kinds of thinkers, artists, makers, etc., who were coming in from all over. And of course, New York does become the center of the art world right around this time, in part because the patrons and artists who are progressive in Europe are being pushed out by the rise of Hitler. So New York is becoming this respite. Not only that, the patronage is so progressive that people like Diego Rivera are pursuing incredible communist mural making, which Louise Nevelson was an assistant on, although that was ultimately painted over. It was a moment where the flow of radical ideas was so steady and Nevelson was there able to mingle with the likes of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. She taught as an art teacher, she was studying Eurythmics, she was inspired by Martha Graham, she was getting into questions of metaphysics, you know, someone who just is steeped in a kind of bohemian art world that is at the same time, of course, deeply impacted by a shortage of materials because of wartime scarcity, and is of course still very impacted by ongoing legacies of anti-Semitism, which have reached a crescendo because of Nazi Germany.
0: And you know, from the beginning of her mature artistic life as a sculptor, she worked with wood and the remainder of carpentry projects describing how, for one of her first such works, she found lumber on the street that had nails and some nail holes in it and different forms and different shapes and just nailed them together and I knew this was art. It actually makes me think about an artist called Baroness Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven. She was a great friend of Duchamp's, and she was one of the sort of first people to really invent the ready-made sculpture. But also part of her work was, I think she called them junk sculptures. She sort of picked junk off the street and called it art, which is why famously she was the one who inspired the urinal. But I mean, what do you think kind of led her to work with wood, but particularly this kind of discarded wood?
1: I mean, I love that comparison. It's great. It's fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I think in part, as you mentioned, she had this familial familiarity through her father and also actually her grandfather, who also worked in the lumber trades back in what was then Tsarist Russia and is now Ukraine. But that's only one part of it. I think she did just have extreme affinity with the material and precisely about its use. So she's not someone who really cares about, say, driftwood or a limb or a twig. I mean, there's plenty of artists who use found wood, for example, in the U.S. South, who are really inspired by the natural shapes that a tree can take. And that's just not what Nevelson was looking towards. She really enjoyed how it had been worked over how it had gone through a process of manufacturing, how it had lived these other lives. And she talked a lot about how she really felt that when she hammered a nail into it, sometimes it would scream back. The sense that she could listen to it. The fact that it was kind of like these two bodies having a conversation. And I do think for her, there was a politics there. She talked about herself as an immigrant woman, feeling marginalized. And she felt that taking a piece of wood that likewise had been thrown away or discarded and reusing it, bringing it into the gallery space, that there was an ethic there of revaluation that she was very committed to. And I try to really draw that out in my book, that kind of question of the kind of politics of scavenging and the found object as a project of women and artists of color and immigrants all over the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's so, in a way, poetic, you know, taking this discarded object. And also, it had already had this life, it's already been torn down. But there's this element of resilience in it. And actually, uh, a few years ago, we had Zoe Whitley talking about Betty Sarr on the podcast. And she really talks about this idea of actually scavenging these really horrifically disgusting uh, racist figurines and actually charging them with power, like her, The Liberation of Aunt Jemima, one of the most significant works in the 20th century. But to sort of do that with wood and repurpose it and kind of give it life again. I mean, it's also empowering in a way. It really is. And I love that you brought up Betty Sarg and also
1: other figures like Noah Purifoy, who to me is one of the great kindred spirits with Louise Nevelson in terms of, yeah, scavenging, taking things that have been subject to ruination and imbuing them with that sense of resilience and power and really honoring that.
0: Totally, and I think it just actually makes wood, it gives it this whole other dimension and whole other politics to it. But also, I mean, the way that she speaks to her generation of painters, people like Lee Krasner or Helen Frankenthaler, you know, the abstract expressionists, Or like you say, Martha Graham, the dancer. And this idea of actually reinvention. You know, this was America. This was a lot of Jewish immigrants. It was post-war time. They were entering into the unknown. And when you've experienced something so horrific, sometimes, you know, abstraction is the answer in a way you're sort of entering this unknown. I remember Grace Hartigan talking about that. Also the fact that there is a sort of painterly element with her sculptures as well, because they do feel like sort of harsh cubist shapes at some points as well. There really is a
1: cubist element, and I love that you picked up on that. She is also in conversation with abstract expressionism. There is a painterly sense. I talk about a piece where, in fact, the splintering of the wood is suggestive of brushstrokes. There is a sense that like, she's using the form, the natural grain of the wood, in a way to speak back to the painterly gestures of abstract expressionism, which was roughly her generation, of course, but she's doing something so different, I think, because While she is working often in an abstract mode, there often is this kind of remainder or residue or trace of the recognizable object. So a balustrade remains a balustrade or a shoe tree remains a shoe tree or these recognizable fragments that do not cohere into a usable object. They've been sort of exploded or splintered, but we still do catch these glimpses of them in their totality of, say,
0: a crown molding Totally. Just to whine back, she had her first exhibition at the Nurendorf Gallery in 1941 at age 42. As well, I think I sort of forget how much older she was when she was exhibiting for the first time. What was the kind of reception for her early work?
1: Well, she had shown in group shows even before that solo show in 1941, and she had positive reviews in the 30s. 1941, yet her first solo show, some positive reviews, some very negative reviews, incredibly sexist in the 40s talking about, oh, we would have hailed her as a great among moderns. But then we checked our enthusiasm when we realized that actually the artist is a woman. And that's not a joke. That was a genuine assessment of the fact that this reviewer could not square the fact of her work with the fact that women were seen as lesser than. Even when she got positive reviews, it still took her a decade to sell her work. So she's kind of laboring with her own sense of persistence that she knows that she's going to be an artist and she's thriving on the positive notices that she did get that were kind of slow in coming, very slow in coming, until she really kind of breaks through. And then, as I said, becomes really one of the most famous artists in the world who represented the U.S. at the 1962 Venice Biennial, has like a plethora of solo shows throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, and is really lauded for all of her achievements and accomplishments. And at the same time, so much attention is paid to the way that she looks and the way that she dresses. So the kind of formal achievements are kind of always set within a framework where her own life and body are kind
0: of in tension. Absolutely. I mean, between 1950 and 1951, she travels to Guatemala and Mexico and was inspired by pre-Columbian art. And it was really in the 50s that I guess things began to shift. I mean, can you tell us about what she kind of began to make at this shifting point?
1: Yeah, well, she had been making some biomorphic um, dancerly figures inspired by the dance that she is interested in. And the trips, as you said, to Guatemala and Mexico to see pre-contact ruins is absolutely pivotal for her. I mean, for her to see the power, the monumentality, the use of the grid, and just the summoning of kind of ancient energies, I guess, was very, very potent for her. And I think that And a lot of her encounters with visual cultures of both pre-contact civilizations, but also of African sculpture, are, as with the rest of the 20th century avant-garde, such a catalyst, such a moment of understanding, like that there are these powers and principles of symmetry or breaking symmetry, or the dynamism of the frame, and then the breaking of that frame, that for her are so enlivening of her own. Form of abstraction.
0: Totally. And I mean, you know, not only are they sort of abstract figures, but I love the way that she's also painted the wood as well. What is the significance of that? Because you write so beautifully about it.
1: Right. She said very early on of how she came to be an artist that she decided that she wanted to be a sculptor in part because she didn't want color. To help her, she wanted to go to form and dimension and think about being, as she called it, an architect of light and shadows. And so the painting of the wood was one way, of course, to just unify what could have been just a hodgepodge chair legs that had been painted red, or a balustrade that had been painted, who knows, you know? And it, so it was an easy way to kind of mute those differences in order to elaborate on textural contrast, and also the curve of one shape next to the plainer scrap of something else. But she was, I think, also just very profoundly drawn to the many meanings of blackness. And for me, you cannot but think about how blackness in all of its registrations in the 1950s in the US is really inextricable from the context of the civil rights movement and questions of racialization. So what Franz Fanon called the epidermalization of race, it's My contention that that is inextricable from the ways that Nevelson herself was thinking about Blackness, honoring Blackness, thinking about Blackness in its multiplicity, and also as a a kind of political designation.
0: Well, I think also with her work, I mean, it just lends itself to so many different things, whether it is talking about uh, the aftermath of the Second World War, the civil rights movements that's going on at the same time, but also I think the impact that they have that when you're sort of with them. I mean, to me, you know, I can't help but think of also the city that she was not only scavenging from, but also she must have lived in. And in a way, they kind of remind me of Louise Bourgeois' Personage series as well, these kind of like shoot-up sculptures. And I mean, I think this idea of place is so interesting. And also what sort of joining buildings in a city means as well, which made me think about what your structure was. And I love this quote from her. She says, you know, the city of Paris is beautiful. California, Berkeley is beautiful. But for me, they're period pieces. I'm not going to live in a city for that. I am more inspired with the crap that I see out of my window. So help me God. But this idea that she was a kind of through and through New Yorker and in a way her pieces emulate that. Like I'm not from New York, but when I stay there for a period of time, you know, you are rushing with the city. And it's like when you're in front of a Louise Nevelson a work. It's like you're rushing with her, sneaking in and out of these different structures the whole time. I mean, tell us about sort of her affinity with place.
1: Yes, I mean, she loved New York. She felt like New York was this kind of endless collage of people and movement, and she loved the subway and you know and you do get a sense in some of even her earliest sculptures that they are these kind of skylines. You get this registration of how she's just constantly returning to New York City as this like wellspring of creativity and imagination and a place where every kind of person is coming together and coexisting. And, you know, she had a big life there. She had friends that included, you know, John Cage and Merce Cunningham and Edward Albee and a very fertile environment to just be very independent and eccentric. You know, she um, very much lived on her own terms. And I think that she was beloved for that because of the way that New York embraces its eccentrics and, and holds them up and elevates them.
0: Totally, And but there is also the sense when you're in New York, one of my favourite works from 1958 is called Sky Cathedral, and I just love Sky Cathedral in terms of the title in its own sense, like what does that even mean? The concept of heaven is that. I mean, can you tell us about this work? Because what this work is, I guess it's one of her earliest work where she does actually bring in the sort of chair backs, furniture legs, scraps, tools, all these different kind of elements are collaged into this one work. She really did play, I think, with
1: silhouette. There are some that are more like actual just squares or rectangles that sort of neatly fit within a frame. And this has got a more uneven outline, right, against the wall and the tension, I guess, between the machinic and the organic that she is also always playing with, which is kind of like, you know, some of these things that feel so factory fabricated, or they feel like they're just commodities churned out one after another. But she's always interested also in imperfection. And yeah, what is a sky, you know, a sky cathedral. Here she is this Jewish immigrant returning to this kind of interestingly Christian word, but she was drawn to the sense that her works were portals portals to a different dimension. And through them or with them, you could conjure new worlds. You know, she was so drawn to materiality and to these very earthly materials of literally just like scrap from the junkyard. But there is always this aspiration to kind of reassemble those scraps to conjure some space of elsewhere.
0: Totally. I mean, really, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment, but she did eventually sort of design the interior of a chapel. But there is this kind of religious aspect to her work as well. And then suddenly in 1959, she's making the likes of Dawn's Wedding Feast, which is, I mean, I have to say, I've never seen this work. I would love to. But she starts painting everything white. What was that shift? Also, was this the moment she created these immersive works as well?
1: Dawn's Wedding Feast was made in 1959 on the occasion of Dorothy Miller's really important show, 16 Americans, which was at the Museum of Modern Art. And Nevelson was in the company of the likes of Frank Stella, men who were much younger than she was. And it was a really, because it was such an important show, and Dorothy Miller had been a big supporter of hers, that she decided to shift gears, take a risk, make an experiment, and made this massive immersive environment that was all painted white. And there were columns hanging from the ceiling, totem pieces coming out independently that you could see in the round. And I mean, in part because of the title, Dawn's Wedding Feast, there is a sense of, you know, nuptial celebration, but the actual work itself is really muscular and intense and actually somewhat ominous in that there's these, you know, jagged spikes kind of coming down. I mean, there's many different ways you can read it, but I think that the title is a little bit of a act of misdirection. But instead of it feeling, to me, kind of like a sugary confection of sort of lightness and air, there's also a sense of heaviness or machinery of gears that are kind of pistons moving up and down. I mean, a lot of things are happening in that installation that
0: kind of exceed the title. Totally. There is a sort of harshness to her work as well. That's why it's so interesting when she changes the colour of it so much. So you get the black works and the white works, and then by 1960, she's creating gold works as well. I love this sort of continuation of this one idiom, but in so many different iterations. So again, it's this multiplicity, multitudinousness.
1: It is. It's such a multiplicity. And the gold works were in part inspired by a trip that she took to Amarillo, Texas. And she saw a bunch of the -the over-the-top excessive like gold fixtures that rich oil magnates had in their houses and you know the gold works to me are really funny sometimes because those are works in which she's kind of defiantly incorporating wooden toilet seats and so at the same time that she's making the statement about all the associations that gold has with luxury and refinement. She's also always reminding us of these kind of like base functions. And she was really open about that and funny about that and kind of crass about like, as much as there's meant to be this splendor in the Goldworks, you know, often there are these toilet seats that are just such this incredible reminder of the abject in the presence of greatness.
0: Totally. And also this discarded object and painting it something gold and sort of elevating it with that. And I remember, I think it was Augusta Savage, who was an incredible uh, sculptor working in the Harlem Renaissance. She used to paint her plaster cards or sort of put shoe polish on them for a sort of bronze effect. And I love this idea that actually nothing has to be the real thing. You know, you can make something beautiful from a discarded object or shoe polish or gold paint for that matter. And I mean, something that really struck me, when you're talking about Mrs. N's Palace, which is actually a work that is this sort of house. I mean, it's this huge three-dimensional monumental sculpture. I think she unveiled it on her 80th birthday. And it's really interesting, you know, around this time, she sort of starts to be labelled as a witch, which I just thought was like completely absurd. Reviewers referred to her as a sort of fur-hatted sorceress. A review in her 1967 Whitney show said, give her a wand, she might have whisked the Whitney to the moon. Could you expand a bit on this idea here, this idea of like sort of calling her a witch, but also this idea of the witch is the embodiment of a world of female subjects that like capitalism had to destroy, like you talk about.
1: Well, she was called a witch from very early on, starting in the 50s. I think she was a co-agent or co-participant in that labeling. So from that Life magazine spread where she's kind of wearing like a peaked witch's hat, I and mean, it's a green-tinted photograph. I think she was very aware of the fact that as a woman who had renounced marriage, was living independently, was older, patriarchy finds such a figure unsettling. And one of the ways to kind of contain those powers is to label them witches. So it's about an aging woman, an independent woman, an economically self-sustaining woman, a woman who has skills, the whole idea of craft, that witchcraft is exactly about women's capacities to make things and be good with their hands. And it's something that instead of me just dismissing that as like, well, that's clearly sexism, which of course it was, and that's a big part of the story. But I also wanted to think about Well, okay, why don't we take that seriously? What about her was scary in the way that witches are scary? What about her was, in a way, about transformation in the same way that witches are about transformation? And ultimately, I do turn to Silvia Federici, the Italian feminist theorist, to also say a witch is also a figure that is a threat to not just patriarchy, but to capitalism. The witch is someone who's working, knows how to labor and produce without the constraints Of the capitalist workday and that's another reason why she creates such a rupture. So how is Nevelson also someone whose labor is kind of aberrant or whose labor is somehow kind of perverted or occultic? So that's something that I decided was actually like I am leaning into that metaphor or kind of insults and I'm trying to really grapple with what it tells us about the stakes of a woman modernist in mid-century.
0: Totally. I mean, another thing that Silvia Federici said, you know, the witch being the heretic, the healer, the woman who dared to live alone. That's
1: exactly right. So to say like, oh, it's not just about this kind of like stereotype, mythical realm of the otherworldly. There have been consequences to women being labeled witches. There have been murders, genocidal campaigns against women who are considered witches. And it is in part, again, the reason that there has been such fear and such terror is because it is about women who
0: dare to live differently. And then, of course, in 1975, she designed the chapel as well. And sort of, I love that idea of, even though she's a Jewish woman, you know, this idea of actually, you know, Sky Cathedral, all these different things. I mean, can you talk a bit about religion in her work?
1: She was non-sectarian. And I think that the chapel, which is in New York, it's a Lutheran chapel.
0: I haven't seen it. I had no idea it existed.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. And I think you know, several modern artists are kind of laying claim to the chapel as a form, Mark Rothko, Matisse and his chapel. And it's very unusual that a woman would be asked to translate her idiom into the chapel form. So it was a very meaningful commission. She has such a total aesthetic that really lends itself to an immersive environment. So she designed everything and the sense that her work does lend itself to a kind of sense of maybe stillness, or quietness some of the works are also very muted or contemplative and i think that the people who commissioned that chapel really grasped that she was more than capable of translating what she did into an environment that would you know facilitate a kind of meditative experience
0: totally because also it brings me back to something like sky cathedral or something it's a bit like experiencing manhattan in a way when you're sort of in it or you're beside it or you're looking at it If you're in Williamsburg or something, you're not always looking at the cityscape, but you know it's there. There is something quite sort of meditative or, I don't know, it's imposing, but it's also not. It's not in your face, but it sort of feels human. And actually coming back to that idea of like a forest, you know, you might be sitting next to a forest, but the forest is always there. There's just something quite comforting about her work.
1: And I think one of the things that also, you know, why wood was such a touchstone is because of its warmth, you know, Mm. wood is... Yes. It is a warm medium. It expands and contracts with the environment. It, even when it's not a tree, it breathes. You know, It has like a, a porousness. There is something just very touchable about it. We live our lives often in very close proximity to wood. And I think that maybe that's a little bit what you're gesturing
0: to. Totally. I mean, how do you think she's shaped sculpture?
1: I mean, I think she's hugely shaped sculpture, hugely shaped sculpture, Also, she gave so many women artists permission to pick up hammer and nails. Her kind of steadfast facility with these tools that were not really coded feminine at all, I think so many women artists and feminist artists and non-binary artists, et cetera, who have come in her wake feel incredibly empowered to also take up more space. I mean, she made large scale work when very few women were giving themselves that permission. And I think that she has been hugely influential for other artists who also want to explore what it means to make something out of trash, make something out of the scavenged. And so many artists, you know, point to her as someone who has been absolutely critical for their own formation
0: she really has shaped so much but also just not even sculptors like performance artists or or painters or there is just so much to her work it's really really extraordinary and I love this quote by her she says you know the only reality that I recognise is my reality through the work and it is just her through and through and actually I should say to the audience if you want to watch there is so much amazing footage and the Met website or the Met YouTube channel have extraordinary videos of her just making in her studio or directing in the studio and we shouldn't really talk about how she looks, but she is incredible looking in the sense that the way she dresses, I mean, that's it's a sort of performance in itself.
1: Oh, she's a complete style icon and I would never <laughs> want to take that away from her. You know, that also is a really important aspect of, of, of her legacy is how what an incredible style icon she was with like, you know, chinchilla for code and scarves and mascara and layering the idea of power clashing with patterns. I mean, she was like a forerunner to all of that. Where I get uneasy is where people only want to talk about how she looks and that the work gets kind of lost in the shuffle. But I think more and more people are starting to understand, like, you know, this is a major artist of the 20th century. We need to put her in her right place. And we can also celebrate the fact that she also made her own jewelry that was incredible and statement pieces. Like, I only hope for my book that it opens the door to many more explorations.
0: I think it does. It's really made me rethink about how we do tell the story of especially women's lives. Julia Bryan-Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. As this is The Great Women Artists Podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could say something to Louise Nevelson, ask her something, anything, what would it be?
1: I would just say thank you for being so rad. You know, Thank you for living your life on your own terms and being so uncompromising about your aesthetic and for believing in yourself when nobody else really did.
0: You're such an inspiration. Wonderful. Julia Brian Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Katie thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the great woman artist podcast with the fantastic julia brian wilson on louise nevelson i'm in awe of all of her work and urge you all to look up julia brian wilson's fantastic book which i will share in the show notes this episode was sound edited by the brilliant nardo smanelich and thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the great woman artist podcast with me katie hesson